Hi, I'm Glenn Roy. And I'm Kareem, and welcome to the Fish Tea Podcast, where... Here with being heels strutting Jamaican queens, talk about LGBTQ politics, pop culture, growing up in the Caribbean, life in the diaspora, and the work it takes to sustain love, life, and laughter in the midst of all the white noise. We're giving you everything, honey. Get into this mug. We're serving you a hot cup of fish tea. Bottoms up. <laughs> hey, girl. Hi. Well, <laughs> Right, right. First of all, it was Google. show them also good. So you put up a nice little um wait name again. One nice little painting for me could look like Yeah man. Yeah, bro. Real uptone something. Very Afrocentric. So yeah, so um, let me just jump right into my update. Then, yeah, but I, but I just me and yeah, the other cook. Come, I have a lot of friends, you know. But I'm not for playing my local role as much as me can't stand anymore. I'm not for playing my local role. So there's that. Um, and I'm not gonna lie, this week didn't really stress me out. But you know, I had a very lucky Friday the thirteenth, and that would be that on that. Oh. <laughs> Boy, as much as I can, but up JV and look at that JV and the record, man. Now look, I'm gonna stop calling JV and him because the month I tell you, I said JV and Pan Fish Tea, people might talk things like JV and podcast. <laughs> what about you? My week was actually pretty good. Um, I feel good about myself because I helped my friend pull together a nice 30th birthday celebration. You know me extra, so. We have to make sure there's a theme and we have to make sure so everything is on time and everything looks good. Um, a lot of people canceled, but that was okay. The food was amazing. Because my man cook it, yeah. Uh, big up chef <laughs> underscore underscore J Marley by Instagram. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, it was really, really nice. My I had um, pulled, pulled it together in like less than a week because we were trying to figure out a venue because of COVID, of course, like there are all these restrictions and everything. And um we settled on a place and it was really, really nice. It really looked, you know, nice and very like worthy of a 30 year old, a 30 celebration. Um, everybody gave us compliments the whole night. And now we're like, you know, so we take that show up on the road. Because me, I have the local, you know, I have the eye for local shows, them and you got the local cooking something. Yeah, hospitality is a group, can't come out of that. Something. Let's um, bring me for me. You be the front door, you tear the ticket, you put it on the back, you know, I'm very hospitable. But yeah, besides that, um, the dissertation, she had come along. Like this week, I had somewhat of a, I don't know, like it was just like this moment where it felt like it was finally making sense. And I was like, you know what? Next week, me and Sandy will give me a dissertation, she until I have to set my um, proposal defense date because I look funny. <laughs> so, how much? You know, you know, we're at 55 and counting, but I think I need to stop because she did tell me that she didn't want such a long proposal. She doesn't think it needs to be that long. She says like 30 pages would have been enough. So now I'm like, all right, Kareem, now you just be nitpicky and you need to just stop. And everybody's like, your dissertation shouldn't be perfect and blah, blah, blah. And true because we know some of them must end up in the academia and this might be the only piece of research, which it won't be, but still, I want it to look good because my name, I got the panic. I want somebody to say, yeah, I want to get all the sightings because they might tell me, oh, people haven't really been doing this, which I like as it's just in the non-profit field but i mean other people have really been there are other scholars and activists and advocates out there who have really been doing this work and so i really try to take the time to highlight their work in mind so i'd be like you know while it is revolutionary for this field don't get it twisted boo boo people out there have been doing it the feminists the the black queer organizers all of them michael we had first say Willis 2021. Martha, yes. Yeah, anything you want to come and put doctor in front side. My love from my grandmother. Because um, I say, if you want to come a Batman, make sure you come a doctor, Batman. <laughs> Batman, PhD. Hello. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, with that said, you know, a lot of what you're talking about um, goes into um the person who is our guest in terms of the work that he has done for this week so, i mean in this that's i can't read because if i just want to people i'm not mine <laughs> for my advice but the mystery person is 
um, someone who has done amazing work within the Jamaican LGBT rights landscape. And let me just say, um, I don't think I would be able to do the kind of work that I'm doing now in the way that I am if he didn't pave the way. Um, and I'm not the only one that feels that way. Like, trust me, what if our difference didn't make for that stretch when they just from a TV every minute and I argue with the girl? So um, I'm so happy and proud that Fishti is able to introduce Mr. Javed Jaga and Mr. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, go on, well, go on. Iconic activist. Hey, Javed. An academic about other things. I mean, never did make the skirt from the way they say that. Oh my God. Don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny you started off with that before Javed go and introduce himself and then we start bombarding whatever question them. Because what you just did, I was honestly going to do because I was like, I told you, like, I. I we're Facebook friends, right? And I don't know him closely, but I do know of him. And so I've like been exposed to your work and everything. And I was going to say that, you know, up front, before we even start all of that, many for tell mm-hmm. thanks because when we was a look about someone would just come out firing. Um, it was seeing you with the long hair or reading a Facebook post or the iconic skirts. That was just like, you know what? That look of Jamaican Batman, you can do it too. And I think it's, it kind of allowed me to push the boundaries of what I called like activism or, you know, to come out even or to just do what it is that I want to do as it relates to LGBTQ advocacy and human rights advocacy. So we have a nice clean skin job in. My love for them something, and not because I'm cocky and we need them kind of affirmation as I feel good about myself, but the work is hard. And honestly, people might feel really grateful, but they don't always say it because mm-hmm. they might not know you, they don't know where to find you, they don't feel like them, them can't really bring certain things to you. So I love, I love, I love when people, when people tell me they appreciate what I did because it gives me another reason to feel proud of the work instead of being conflicted about it. So, thank you. No problem. Thank you for coming. Um, well, let me just jump with the why, why I did so brave? Why, why, why you're just so brave? Why make me like say? Well, so all of the 50 million Batman them were run of in Jamaica, you had to meet that Batman. Come, start with it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. And it, it's honestly perplexing to me now because I always say if if I was in this moment that I'm in right now, I could never do it. And so it had to be that moment. It had to be, it had to be that time because I was I was going to explode if I didn't say something. And I realized at the time, let's soon back up a little, but I realized at the time that after all of what I endured in Jamaica, I mean, it kind of need to drip up Jamaica back. Because Jamaica is who I had a problem with. And instead of running away from Jamaica and then suffering on my own, I was like, no, me actually, I go come talk to you know, about what I did got through and how it has shaped my thinking about justice and fairness and the kind of Jamaica I want to be a part of. And I was, I was just gonna, I was, I was, I was gonna do it, you know? Let me tell you really what kind of led up to that moment where I was willing to go on TV and say, Mia Batman. I started doing research in Kingston in 2011. All right. That must sound like so long ago, like 2011 was nine years ago. In 2011, when I went to Jamaica, I did not know any queer people. I did not know any LGBT identified people at all which is kind of strange because I was born in 1989. I lived in Jamaica until I was 17. I went back every summer after school, but me never knew no LGBT people. I grew up in St. Mary and for like, I understood myself as queer because Jamaicans pointed it out to me every day, but I didn't know anybody else who I felt like, hey, like that person, even if I saw people who were going through similar challenges, many of us really think that, oh, maybe we have some kind of shared bond or identity as a result of what we are going through. And so therefore, we're the same kind of people. I never thought that. So all of my life growing up in Jamaica, I thought I was the only one like me. Which is a really crazy thing to feel when the whole world is, when the whole world, when the whole world, like everybody, a pint pie, a laugh at you, a mock you, 
uh, uh, televalent things and there is nobody to share your struggle with or share in your struggle because yeah, you're yeah, the only one. And it's not like I could turn to my family either because me no know, me they just feel like say, I, sexuality I one of them something they ain't really talk about. And so me never really know how to bring it to my family for say, hey, like I'm being harassed in the street every day or I'm being harassed at school every day. And then me never really know what them did I go do if them didn't even know about that. So I kept it to myself. And I was, I was like a pressure cooker, really, because one of the defining experiences growing up as queer in Jamaica is that when you're a little effeminate person, you don't really talk back when people tell you mean things. And so me now feel like, say, when people tell you things, you need to tell them back things because conversation, communication is an exchange. Like you give me negative energy, like that negative energy sits in me. I mean, if you give you like something because it generated something in me. But for all those moments when people directed negative energy, which entered my body and settled in my chest, I said nothing. And that pressure, it built up, and it built up, and it built up, and it built up. And I went abroad when I was 17, and that's when I really had the space to really think about these experiences and learn about LGBT vocabularies and... That was the first time I ever even contemplated the idea that I could be gay because, of course, growing up in Jamaica, people point point and say, yeah, Batman, and you're like, I'm not that thing which you think is so evil. I could not be, right? I could not be this. I could not be something that you hate to such a degree that you have to fight me every day. So I resisted the idea that I could be a Batman. And then after me left Jamaica, me, I said, wait, mm, maybe, there is, maybe there's something to this and maybe this is something I need to really look into. And... At the time, I was really desperate to find other, Jamaican, other Jamaicans who had similar experiences. So I turned to the internet. And of course, 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, three quarter hour fine was narratives of brutalization. Okay? Which made sense because that is what I experienced growing up. So I was like, okay. Apparently, men are the only one where people are threatened for butter bruise, like people actually get butter bruise. And that narrative online, which was primarily written by foreign media and news sources, really solidified in my mind that death was the only, was the only reasonable outcome I could expect as somebody who claims the gay identity in Jamaica. And so... I'm very critical of these narratives now, but they really did. They were instrumental in pushing me over the edge because I was like, wait a second. Like I'm, I'm this person who thought I was the only gay person growing up in Jamaica and I'm so desperate to find other people, but all I'm finding is these narratives of brutalization. So I'm like, wait, where, how, where is the empowerment in this? Like the only thing this does to me is convince me that I need to run away from Jamaica. And if all of us are running, then who is doing the educating, right? Who is helping to move this society forward? If everything we read says, you're dead, if you ever say, you're a Batman. So I went to Jamaica in 2011 to do research. It was research about myself, I would say, primarily, because I left Jamaica at a time when I was discovering my LGBT identity. So I didn't really have a sense of place within Jamaica and I was really desperate to, to find that. So I went to Kingston with my little book, or maybe I write my notes in minute, but I knew nobody. And I reached out to this girl at, from, at UWE who I went to high school with and she said, she knows a lesbian girl. So I was like, okay, that's fascinating. We need to meet a lesbian girl, yeah. And that lesbian girl at UA introduced me to Oasis, which was a social space uh, near Devon House. And I went to that space and then we meet some, some more people. And then me hear about Pride in Action. And we got Pride in Action at UA. And then we meet some more people. And then I went to J Flag and we meet a bag of people, lesser too. And slowly, and, and slowly but surely, I started to build a really big network around myself. And so I went from knowing zero people to knowing hundreds of people. And 
every time I met somebody, it didn't matter who they were, where they were from, as long as they identified with the LGBT community or were present in the spaces that I was visiting, we tried to talk to them to understand what kind of life they might live. And at the end of that experience in 2011, uh, learning about LGBT life in Jamaica through the experiences of people who lived in Jamaica, I came to the conclusion in the report I wrote that one of the greatest impediments to creating a more tolerant Jamaica is the fact that so few of us are willing to really step out from the shadows and uh, be public figures in the way that I saw American queers being public about their identities. And at the time, like I can tell you, the executive director of JFLAG at the time used a pseudonym and Javion, who is the current executive director at the time, used a pseudonym and for good reason, because there was year after year of documented violence against LGBT people. And it was, under, we understood that it was very dangerous to do this work. And after I wrote that argument that it was, it was important, it was going to be important for more of us to, to be visible. I was like, I'm not comfortable making this argument if I'm not willing to stand by my word. So that was one thing. I didn't want to be a hypocrite. And the second thing was understanding as well that in general, the burden to liberate the minds of people and to challenge prejudices almost always falls to the most vulnerable people, which makes no freaking sense. Well, it makes sense in that they're the ones who are most exposed to harassment and violence. So of course, they're going to be the people who speak up. But I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, like many of us don't risk the same kind of violence when we speak. And so why is it that the most privileged people are the most silent? And at the time I was thinking to myself, I have a, a student visa and later on I had a green card and I knew that at any point I could take a taxi to Norman Manley International and fly out if I felt like my life was in danger. And that was a freedom that most Jamaicans just do not have, okay? And I went to school abroad and I studied gender and sexuality in school. So I had a certain grasp of the vocabulary and I could speak articulately about these issues to a national audience. And I was like, if anybody can do this, I can do this. So there is no reason why I won't. And by the time I graduated in 2012, I was going back to Jamaica to volunteer with JFLAG for a year. And I just knew in my head that I'm going to Jamaica to come out. I'm going to Jamaica to come out to this country. I didn't know how that was going to happen, but I knew that adapt me I go Jamaica for. So once the opportunities came up for me to participate in television interviews about sexuality and gender and equality, it wasn't even a question of whether or not I was going to do it. Adapt me go Jamaica for. And I was never going to disguise my voice. I was never going to blur my face because the whole point was to be a representation of what it means to be LGBT to people like me at home who may not know that there are other people like them, right? And so I was like, no, we're not gonna learn today. Like I wanted to reach out to a white Jamaican audience, but most importantly, I wanted to reach out to people who were, who are, right, scattered across Jamaica in all kinds of rural communities like the ones that I lived in, who don't know, say, there are other people like them. And I was like, we're not gonna learn today. If we happen to have the TV on during this interview, we're not gonna learn, say, we're there, we're there, we're there, we're there. And that you did in fine style. So um, that's what I tell you, thanks again, because that's what I say, you didn't go out with yourself. You didn't, you didn't <laughs> I'm not saying we're bright, right? Yeah, there are challenges, but we're nice and we're clean and we're ready. I mean, of course, people will say that sounds like a lot of respectability politics, but you know, I always believe so you have to leverage your privileges to make the kind of difference that you 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 want. And so it was important then to also challenge dominant images of the community. And and you were able to do that 
And even when them, all them did, did call it on TV, I just was like, why this was a moment? All them call it on TV was a homosexual, because that was your defining feature. But right. even with all of that baggage, you were able to stand up to the country on TV, but also stand up to the state by launching the first case um, to challenge the anti laws. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 can, I, I feel that, you know, you did what you set out to do, um, even though um, the case was eventually dropped. But I don't, I don't know that for me, the win was the case. Because, right. you know, from where I stood, I remember we, we spoke about this briefly. From a legal perspective where I stood, I never necessarily saw the case doing particularly well. But I don't think that was the point. And I think people understood that that wasn't the point. And mm. so, about yourself, Karim. Yeah, so I, I, I think for me, the emphasis, right? Like you going and unlearning, I saw a lot of it in my own journey. But I think what I liked about um, your advocacy was the way you would come back and talk to us. And well, I could say for me specifically. So for example, um, I remember one of your posts, I actually went back to try and find it. And I'm just going to read the first part of it because I wanted you to just say more because I feel like that's something that not just people in Jamaica could, um, not just LGBTQ individuals in Jamaica could find useful, but those of us in the diaspora, as we think about how we can lend our voices and our privileges to um, that, that fight, kind of amplify the fight for equality for queer lives in Jamaica. And it says, I'm still thinking about the idea that someone's vision of themselves could be too grand for a small country. It's something I always remember saying before I left Jamaica for the first time, I'm too big for this place. And I think it stood out to me because when I was leaving, right, I, I couldn't wait to leave Jamaica because for me coming to America was um, exciting. I'm going to be my, be able to be my true self. I don't have to look back, and I think that was one of the arguments that I used to comfort myself that, you know, anyways, I'm too big for this place anyways, like who I am and who I'm destined to be. I cannot fulfill that here in Jamaica. And then I come across people like Glenn Roy, I come across people like David. I'm like, mm, bitch, you could have. And I come across posts like this and I'm, I, it challenged me to kind of think about, because even now in my um, PhD journey, like people ask me, what is it that I want to do? And I'm like, you know, I think I might go back home and do some and, and do research or figure out how I can, what I've learned about nonprofit and public administration, I might try to figure out how to be a conduit for some of the, the resources that are available um, so I could channel that to Jamaica. And so if you'd like to, um, or feel the need to just to say a little bit more about that post, where that was coming from, um, what you intended for it, because I think it was, it's, it, I think there's a, a very important message that, um, that lies within it. Cool. Let me try, let me try to say. One of the most heartbreaking things about my coming out in Jamaica was having to accept that being queer and Jamaican were incompatible. And like it made more about no one to think about it because the way I love my country is unreal. And it's not some sentimental patriotism. It's this understanding that we are shaped by the cultural context mm -hmm. in which we are raised. And, and I understand that everything about me was a response to my upbringing in Jamaica. And because I didn't really feel like I fit in, I thought I wasn't Jamaican enough. Right. I thought I wasn't good enough for Jamaican people. Right. And in a, in, in, I remember saying to myself at some point that I'm the opposite of Jamaican masculinity. And so I'm not Jamaican at all. But the fact that Jamaica is what I was responding to the entire time tells me that what I became is a Jamaican thing. Is a Jamaican, like I, everything about me is Jamaican. And so for me to feel like the best future I can create for myself is outside of Jamaica, I had to accept certain assumptions about um, where we could be great. And there's a constant we have so much messaging in the world that tells us 
first world countries are better than everywhere else, you know, and we accept it. We accept it and we don't play, we don't play the value in our own experiences and we, we just, we accept the hierarchy, you know, that mm. people who live in Jamaica are just going to have a more limited, a more constrained, a less fulfilling life. And I accepted that. I accepted that partly because it was comforting for me to believe that exile was the only option for me. Because if exile is the only option, then I don't have to grapple with the people who raised me. I don't have to fight with them because they wouldn't understand anyway, right? But I don't believe that anymore. Mm. And I don't believe Jamaicans are any more homophobic or any more ignorant than anybody anywhere else. And I feel like this moment in history is really making that very clear because we are realizing that bigotry can thrive in first world countries too, right? Mm. And so it's never a matter, it was never a matter of Jamaican people's capacity to understand and incorporate people like me into the national project. It was, as I understand it now, a lack of exposure, a lack of exposure. And at the end of the day, I understood that because the LGBT experience is mine, then I was going to have to play a role in educating people, uh, even when it, it, it's challenging. And I use the experience of my mother to really uh, reinforce my understanding of that responsibility because it's tough. It's tough to have to explain to people things they don't want to understand. But if you say you love me and if me say me love you, we have to have the conversation. And so Jamaica is big enough. Jamaica was always big enough. And I'm really glad I know that now. And I'm really glad you told that to the rest of us because I feel like the notion of Jamaican and queer identities coming together is something that is very central to the way JFLAG does its work now, particularly if you think about Pride Jamaica as, I mean, in a way, birthed from that kind of advocacy. It comes, it, it says, and which is why it's in August, 1 to August, it centers queer Jamaicans in the Jamaican project. And so, I mean, it, it is a fundamentally important conversation to have because then you also, you also disarm the notion that queerness is invasive, that it's external, and that now it seeks to conquer a space that it never existed and it's colonial. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, we, we have to undo one. And for me, the only way to undo it is claiming both at the same time. It's difficult yes. as that can be at times. But as I always tell people, I, as a Jamaican Batman, is most body, body identifiable when we, you know, and dance our space a bubble out to the sand them. Because that is the one time you show me is what? Based on just how our own, you know, thinking about what a Batman looks like. When right. you see a man, the identity therefore is tied to your, your, your understanding of your own queerness and it's not separable in that way and it's kind of getting people to understand that if you leave your country trying to find a kind of queerness that resonates with you 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 will get some of it but right. i feel whatever you get will be at the at the expense of a part of you that's kind of also just as fundamental to how you understand yourself and also how you understand your queerness. Um, yeah. Hold on there. Because I love the idea of queerness that resonates with you. I love that. And it brings me back to the first queer party in Jamaica that I ever went to. And it was actually in 2010. So a year before I started doing research, and it's the reason I started doing research, because when I walked into this space, my first thought was, first of all, my entire life, I believe this space couldn't exist. So who the hell are you people stepping into this space? Why do you, why do you, why do you look like kin to me? Right? Like all the things that I, that I was shy about or afraid to embrace because people used to tease me for it. I'm, I'm seeing people challenge gender norms and show up in all kinds of gender presentations that seem so radical and revolutionary. And of course, this is happening in the middle of the night, right? And people would say, well, it's happening in the middle of the night. 
in the hills of St. Anne because we're hiding. And I'm like, mm, yeah, we're hiding, but we're also revealing ourselves more than we ever do to the general public. So, so there's, something, there's something happening here. It's not you, from the outside, you're looking, well, they're hiding because they have to be fearful of their lives. But what I see people showing up as, I'm like, no, this is revelation. This is, this is not a symptom of hiding. This is recognizing the need to find, to find uh, freedom in Jamaica and the will to carve out spaces, even if, it means that, if, if, even if it means that space has to exist between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., people are doing it. Mm. People are doing it. And yo, the music, the music and how people responded to the music like it could only, this could only be a Jamaican scene. This could exist nowhere else in the way that I'm seeing it unfold. And I'm like, whoa, I don't, know, I don't know what's going on here, but we have to come back, come learn more about this. So as you said, that, so I flash back to remember when the Beanie Bounty uh, versus was happening online. And mm-hmm. you know, me, Alyssa, me, Aguan, and me, I kill it on us and I enjoy myself. And it was just so funny watching Bounty Killer. It still tickles me to this day. Watching Bounty Killer struggling to not say the homophobic lyrics. And then when it's fine, <laughs> like, I don't know, but the meaning of a celebrator, you know what it's saying? Come and say, Because I think the defiance resonates, you know? I yes. think that's the sheer Jamaican reality. We understand defiance. We yes. are marked by a defiance of any kind of system. And so Bountikil has been told he cannot do this in the same way. I mean, of course, this that he's doing is perpetuating a harmful narrative against someone like me. But at the same time, me can understand, say, me get swole, some of the things too. So me can celebrate in that defiance, even though it's a complicated celebration, I understand, say, but he's defying is a rule that's saying, of course, they're harmful narratives. But I still got it and I still enjoyed it because I also understood how that space worked and why that happened in that space and how right. Dance out of the corners doesn't doesn't work in that way, and so yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's just to me something about our culture and how it works, and that to get at least for me to get me at my queerest, I needed that. And when I was living in London, I it never makes sense to go Soho and go heaven. I I mean, I I did, and 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 sometimes I did enjoy myself, but I knew to enjoy my full queer identity. I had to go to a black queer space where that played dancehall. In the same way, when I and, and I was great, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, to go to both prides, um, you know, black pride in the UK and regular pride. And for regular pride, it was okay, you know, you do your parade, you enjoy yourself, and you see what queerness is in its you know traditional global North form. But right. then the black the, the black queerness that I um, was able to enjoy at Black Pride while having straight friends there who felt like they could come into the space and celebrate along in a space along with me. That was about celebrating my queer identity, but it wasn't done in a way that they felt like they were completely excluded because there was this big celebration of culture that they could identify within me, right? And I feel like there's something to be said about that. Um, and, 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 I, and I think it's essential. You can't do that. You can't do activism in whichever part of the world that you're doing it or advocacy in whichever part of your world that you're doing it, definitely as somebody of color without kind of bringing in both into the fray. Because if you don't, then you're losing something. Somebody, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not Yeah. Cool. yeah. <laughs> you can bubble to the uncost tomorrow in the famous words of Glenn. I agree with that. So with, uh, sorry, but I have a question. Then that ties to that, and then we didn't want to um, go to something else. But so that kind of foregrounds the question of, you know how them so we're supposed to feel about Buju, right? Because I've been bad by. But I you mean, went, come on, tell me, head girl. Yeah, you. <laughs> sir. So you want to tell the people why you face of Batman, man, you're to, in Jamaica, you're to Buju, the quote-unquote face of homophobia in Jamaica. Why would you go there? Well, um, and, and not only that, but talk about Boom Bye Bye, your research project, because that's another thing. I was like, what an interesting time. But say, I just love it. That's my brain's not to go space. Yeah. Yeah. Boy. So I, I went to Buju's concert in Kingston. And it was one of those things I understood that as a Jamaican, I cannot miss this. I cannot 
LGBTness aside, I cannot miss this moment in Jamaican history because I know what Bujum means to Jamaican people because what he means to people is what he means to me. I grew up in the 1990s when Buju was killing it. Okay, wow. this is a fuck. Sorry, yeah, you can't. We're gonna. We're not doing too much. Where you can't cause. <laughs> this is a prodigy. He he's an amazing musician who was making music, writing lyrics, doing beautiful performances as a teenager. Okay, and when Buju just busting at the twenties, he's ripping through. Kingston's music scene, okay? And I grew up, I grew up listening to the Buju, the reformed Buju. That became uh, this hybrid between dancehall, reggae roots, Rasta. I remember growing up listening to, hearing Buju on the radio, listening to Buju in the taxis, and to this day, like songs like Not An Easy Road, Murderer, Destiny, like, very few songs resonate as, like, Jamaican music that brings me back to my, my soul and my core than the music of this man. And so I've always struggled with how Buju has been demonized in the international media uh, because I was like, I know what you're saying about this song, but I know this is a complex human being. And every single time you try to demonize him as a monster, Jamaicans are going to demonize you because really? they know another side of this man. Ah, so did you remember? Okay. All right. <laughs> we, have, we have to go. We have to go take another. We have, we have to go sit down this little bit because. So for my dissertation, I, the only thing I wanted to do was tell Jamaican LGBT stories in their own voices because. I'm, I'm really tired of academics feeling like the value that they create from their work is to take the words of a Glenn, take the words of a Kareem, and then apply theory to it to make it make sense. And I resent that approach because I feel like people, when people tell their stories, that's knowledge. You don't need to do anything to it. You don't need to do anything to it. The declaration, the testimony, the depth of the insight, it's all there. You don't really need to touch it. And so I really struggled throughout grad school because at the end of the day, I realized I really didn't want to analyze Jamaican LGBT experiences based on the canon. I mean, if I really want to do that, I just wanted to uplift and elevate and provide a space for these voices to exist, right? So I interviewed hundreds of people over the over 10 years and for my dissertation i decided to focus on jamaican lgbt refugees so i went to different communities where there are clusters of refugees i'm still gonna interview them me live in a house with some people we call them by the phone all kind of different uh touch points right and when we sit down and talk to people and we go from when they born all the way to when they're big. I mean, I just focus on, tell me about a time when you were brutalized, mm. which is something that North American journalists did with me before. And it made me very mad. So I was like, we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about the very formation of your sense of self and how that book up in a queer narratives and when you eventually decided to embrace the politics of that life. And anyway, beautiful stories. And maybe just want to put the story in another book. I say city book, yeah, which is just a book of stories. But I wanted to do something else. I wanted to also tell the backstory to why this population of people are so important for us to study. And so I had to do a lot of digging to kind of unravel the origin of Boom Bye Bye. Okay? Now, I wrote about this. I, I can't really finish the story right now because I'm working on, on a career transition, but we have to go back to it because I spent so much time trying to kind of write the story of how Boom Bye Bye became a seminal moment in Jamaican LGBT history. So never just say one thing, which I've never really heard as a part of the conversation. And while listening to Joe Vante's podcast, I actually 
remembered this because he said, North Americans taught us, we learned, not taught us, but we learned from them how to be homophobic. Mm. And I was like, yes, absolutely. And so, boom, bye, bye, 1992. Okay, what's happening in the world in 1992 in terms of gender and sexuality? Well, I can tell you, HIV AIDS. Mm. HIV AIDS and dance hall, these two things that don't seem related at all, emerged into the world at the same freaking time. Mm. At the same freaking time. Now, when you think about what was happening in Britain, what was happening in Western Europe, what is happening in North America in the 1980s, there was an upswell of opposition to LGBT equality. Okay? Because HIV and homosexuality were, were paired right. in, the, in the popular imagination. And it makes sense because of all the communities that were decimated and just like get teared on because of HIV, gay men in particular were at the forefront of that struggle. And so I understand why once the media had alerted the public publics all around the world, right? To this plague that was terrorizing people and was particularly targeting people who were already vulnerable because they were described as morally degenerate in some way. So people who intravenous drug users, prostitutes, homosexuals, HIV didn't make us hate these people. We already hated them, right? And in the case of homosexuals, there was one, two decades before of really intense advocacy. So they had already entered uh, political discourses in North America and Europe. But now we had HIV to contend with. And honestly, when you read, when you learn about the history of how Americans responded to homosexuals during the time of HIV, boom, bye, bye. Boom, bye, bye, don't come close. Boom, bye, bye is not worse than what Americans and British people said about us. Now, here's why understanding the emergence of or reading dance hall within the context of HIV is important. When dance hall started to define the themes that were going to be central to the genre, gender and sexuality were always there. Okay, always. Like, literally, we call dance all slackness, and a lot of that slackness is sexual slackness. And Black Jamaicans from the ghetto, from poor rural backgrounds, were defining a new vision of gender and sexuality that was different from what the Christian Jamaica was putting forward. And so imagine you are trying to define for yourself what your gender and sexual ideology is. This is after 150 years of suppression in Jamaica where we haven't really heard alternative visions of nationality and gender and sexuality and religion and politics because we haven't given Pato-speaking people a chance to speak. Mm -hmm. So here come these people now trying to narrate for themselves what they believe about gender and sexuality. And they're doing it in a time of AIDS. So, boom, bye, bye is not this random or this mean-spirited attempt to belittle LGBT people just because. In fact, the whole world was doing it. The whole world was doing it. And now... I kind of empathize with, with those voices a little bit because I'm like, wait, I understand why in the time of HIV and AIDS, which honestly, we never really understand what I'm going. People were terrified. People were terrified. Okay? And so you started, to, you started to see in Jamaican music references to sexually transmitted diseases. You started to see references to homosexuality and HIV starting in the late 1980s. Right. And Buju Banton 
was one of one of many people who were including these narratives in their work. And the fact that we've the fact that North Americans isolated this man, isolated this song, and isolated Jamaica as the home of homophobia mm. for something that they were doing in their own societies is something I had to trouble. And so I wrote a story in my dissertation where I tried to tell the story of Boom Bye Bye from the perspective of Jamaican musicians, mm. which is, was very difficult for me to do because, of course, my whole approach to this world of dancehall was to reject it and to, to, to really accept the, 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 the perspective of Western activists when it comes to Jamaican music and the themes in our music. And so I was like, no, I actually need to go sit on an after them head and think about the moment they were living in and think about what they were trying to communicate and not to necessarily justify it or excuse it, but to, to put it in context, which is something I'd that I had never seen before until I did it for myself. This, I mean, I know I brought this up with Gervonta in the previous episode, um, but it still, to me, sounds like what I call homophobia as resistance. I mean, the kind of deployment of homophobia to kind of resist certain narratives. So how I'm hearing it, I mean, of course, probably, probably for my own purposes, but how I'm hearing it is that dancehall, you know, artists and producers at the time are carving out their sexual identity and carving out something that goes against the norm, but must also say, but we're not that, right? Mm -hmm. We're not layers of death, which is, a, which is what the homosexuals who pass around HIV. Um, right. And that therefore doesn't treat homophobia as something that is just, and it may very well be amorphous and pervasive, but it's also a tool, right? That you, that you strategically and selectively deploy for particular purposes. And that's kind of how I understand and I've you know, been thinking about homophobia since, um, about last, since about like late 2018, which is, it's a tool used for a specific purpose to get to an, uh, to get to an end rather than an overarching belief system that has been, that we subscribe to. And it could be both, but I, I see more, I look at it, I see it more as a tool that people put up and that people have, that they take up, when they want to use it for a particular person's and put back, that they're not necessarily, it's probably really like what they treat the Bible. One tool where they're using them feel like, even though it's supposedly an overarching belief system. But right. yeah, trouble my thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, Boom Bye Bye was one thing, but it's what happened after that really fascinated me because starting in 1992, there was this intense backlash, right? It started with Boom Bye Bye, but it went on for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in this time and many Jamaican musicians rushed to the defense of Bujo. And every time they rushed to the defense of Bujo by re re reaffirming what he said as a testament or a declaration of Jamaican indigenous values, activists abroad use this to justify, hey, like, see, they actually are super homophobic because look what they're saying. But... Honestly, now I also understand Jamaican homophobia in dancehall music as a defense of sovereignty because, honestly, the queer activists were out of line. Mm. They were out of line. The extent mm. to which they decided they were going to crush little black boys for daring to speak a perspective that, was, was, that did not align with what they believed. They were like, look, you don't have a right to speak. You don't have a right to have an idea that does not align with what we say the world should be like. Even though voices like Buju existed in North America and Europe too. Mm. So the idea that they could isolate Jamaica and point to Jamaica as some backward place that was worse than what they were. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And the men who they decided to target they didn't know who they were playing with. They thought if we deny you the access to money, we, if we deny you access to global markets, okay, you will be so weakened in your resolve that you will apologize 
and you will take back everything you said. But they didn't know who they were dealing with because it backfired. Instead of suppressing that point of view, you, well, we know what happened. Right? We had the people who, the people who they were challenging, they were not going to back down. They were not going to back down because they understood they were actually defending something that is legitimate. And for me, that's something I celebrate today because we live in a world that's increasingly becoming homogenized. And even if I don't agree with the perspectives of people who are homophobic, it's important to understand that the whole world is not going to move at the same pace when it comes to adopting Western frameworks for how we think about gender and sexuality. There's a whole world of ideas that are competing for space, right? And, and we, have to, we have to allow those, those perspectives to exist. The idea that you're going to do what Jamaicans call box food out of smarty mouth, mm-hmm. lick them off of their foot, embarrass them, humiliate them to get your way, no. Demand them, demand them stand up for themselves. Them say, no. You can't tell we say what people have believed for hundreds of years. All of a sudden now you're gonna punish us. You're gonna punish yeah. us. You're gonna punish us. No, Jamaica, the, the men who they challenge, we're not having it. And we completely understand why. That's definitely a lot to chew on <laughs> and think about. Girl, that's our next episode, man. I know Javid for a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about the um, that type of resistance from that perspective. And I can honestly say, because I'm, I'm very well. I'm in that space. So I'm very frank with uh, about calling out my own conditioning, as um, Glenmore would put it, right. And I'm realizing how a lot of these things, a lot of these narratives that I've perpetuated, were really imposed on me in some, in some way, and like all of the implicit biases and so on that I have towards my own Jamaican people and towards my own um, yes. home are narratives that were swirling around me. And I'm doing the work now to kind of, when I recognize something, bring it to my family members' attention. So when my mom makes a statement like, that's how I can't work with black people. I'm like, no, sis, let's, let's not, let's not do that. Or me, that never work. Cause she does home health aid work. She's like me, me not work for no Jamaican because Jamaican, this and Jamaican, and she starts to screw up all the stereotypes and so on and so forth. Um, and the white family, them and the white, I'm like, see, yeah, we gonna have to, let's have a conversation about how we've really been conditioned. I did this, um, this is totally off topic, but I did like the Harvard, Harvard's, um, the IAT test, implicit assessment test or something like that. And one of it, one of the results, I did the race one, and it's like, I have a slight preference to white people. And I was like, at first I was like, what? I'm going to tell me a social justice scholar, Jesus Christ, da, 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 da. But I, like when I was able to get over my ego and kind of step back and be like, but wait, you were kind of like, you were so Americanized. Like you couldn't wait to come out firing because I was yes. on TV and yes. the white neighborhoods and the picket fence yes. and the big house and the, four, the, the mother, father, the two, like you were so into that that you're, I mean, now I'm proud of myself. I'm unlearning those things. And so it's it's great hearing those perspectives. Um, Glenn, I mean, I want to talk about self-care from an advocacy standpoint, because um, I think that's so important. Go off, like about six minutes left, but go off, friend. No, 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 I just, I, I, because like, it, I think it's so important. Um, and I know you, and again, go ahead. Well, I was saying, I want to hear him talk about that. Um, but I know it's a six minute sign up, but I'll stop you. Whenever you're done, you're done, friend. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this I'm is legendary just, icon. May Africa is... just come back. May Africa just come back. Because <laughs> the more that's, like the more that's sitting, we're not even touched yet. Right. right? But talk Remember? about self-care bits, yeah. And, and also why you left advocacy. All of that wrapped up in one. Yeah. So I left... Jamaica to start my PhD program in 2013. And when I left Jamaica, I was a shell of what I was when I went to Jamaica in 2012 after graduation to go do LGBT advocacy. Like, I was not myself anymore. My, my emotional state was completely mash up. 
And it was actually related to the case. And so we have to talk about that again one day because all of a sudden, I took on this responsibility, right? Maurice Tomlinson came to me and said, we have this case. Nobody's willing to put their name on it. And I was in a space where if Jamaican people asked me to do anything with regards to the LGBT community, I was going to say yes, because I was, ben- I was like, I was interviewing people. I was learning from these stories and I was going to use these stories to advance my own career. And I was like, no, like you have to give back. And so when Maurice came to me, it wasn't even a thing to contemplate. I said, yes, immediately without thinking about how this was going to impact my family. My mother don't drive. She don't have no gate on her yard. Okay, like she take taxi. And I was so convinced that whatever price I would have to pay, it was worth it. And that was it, you know? But I didn't really know what the price was until I was in the moment. And forget about the harassment. The most hurtful part of that case for me was watching Christian activists and the media too, to be honest, turn me into a villain, Mm. turn me into an enemy of the people when all I ever wanted was to reconcile our differences. And I saw how if we continued this case, Maurice told me, Javed, this now we don't know we're going to do this for five years. And if then come back and say, no, we're going to go privy council with this for 10 years. I mean, I say, wait, Mm. is this going to be 10 years of groups like the Love March movement antagonizing young queer people who are growing up? Because I am giving them an opportunity to exalt themselves. I'm giving them a reason to march in the streets and other queer people who live in Jamaica who have to face these people. That's what they're going to have to go through because I feel like this is the best way to advance our collective humanity and rights. I couldn't do it. There was a time I remember I was going to, uh, I was going to do a conference, a symposium at UA and I had promised somebody that I was going to do it and I was in no position to do it, but I was like, I promised them they're going to do it. I had to have two armed bodyguards in the audience because I was terrified for my life. Okay? And I showed up anyway. But the whole time, the the stage, me just, me a shake. Because I mean, no, none of them people in the audience. I mean, don't know who they out the door. And this thing is being broadcast on the radio. I mean, don't know who are rushing at UA campus when they hear me and hear somebody at UA. Okay, I lived in a house, Javian can tell you, because Javian was there. We, had, we installed an electrical alarm system and every time the door opened, there was a beep. And every time that beep went off, I had a panic attack because I was like, yeah, the mob is coming. Like they're actually at my door and they're here because I decided that I was gonna push harder than anybody had ever pushed before even though I was not in a position. Me not have no money. Nobody not pay me if you do their work, yeah. Right, this is volunteer work. And I'm putting my life at risk. I'm putting my family's life at risk. And I'm feeling that. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Okay? And on top of that, the people who I want to work with, my, my people, the people of St. Mary, I can't even face them anymore. I can't go home. Like, if you told me I was going to give up and you told me that being an LGBT activist meant that I was going to have to turn my back on the people of St. Mary who I trained myself to serve, I would have said no. But again, all the costs that I thought were worth it no matter what, what that cost was became more and more evident more and more evident and honestly we couldn't take it it was too much and i had to i had to check out because i needed to reevaluate what kind of activist i wanted to be i needed to find a way to push the concerns of lgbt people forward without destroying myself and destroying the purpose i wanted to fulfill in jamaica Mega stop this, sir. Um, 
I felt a lot of that. Um, and as somebody who does, you know, activism now and advocacy now, and, you know, I do the media interviews as well. Um, I get it. I mean, my family still live at Augustone, for God's sakes, you know? And I, and I, and which is why I started the way I did. And I, because it pains me that you had to go through all of that. And I don't just think about you. So, which is why I know I take the position and say, if we don't need to litigate nothing, we don't need to litigate nothing. Because I know for a fact that litigation, because it's an adversarial process, right. naturally are going to lead to this. Right. Uh, there are other ways to kind of engage. But I, I must say, though, that it did make, so it did make this and me and, and, and that possible. And it sounds like a selfish response, but I just wanted to know that all of that was not in vain and, and, and it was a terrible cost to pay. And I think about people like Caleb Orozco who paid that kind of cost in Belize and, you know, it was a terrible cost to pay, but just I take solace, I hope, in the fact that you sowed so many powerful seeds that we're, st we're, still, we're still feeling the ripple effects of it now. Yeah. Right? We're still feeling there are people like Nikoi now who are coming up who just who have no problem just being bubbling forth. And it may seem like, um, oh, that not have nothing to do with a job. But just the fact that you made it possible for even media houses to showcase someone saying, I am, LG I am openly LGBT, that made them more open to the possibility of myself and Javian and Nicole coming into their spaces. And so I know it's never going to be enough to say all of, the, all of that toll that you would have taken on. Um, it, it's not, that answer is not enough for that. But it was not in vain. And I, and, and I really wanted to hear this from the bottom of my heart. It was not in vain. And, and as I did sell us that, he's like, yeah, I believe in I remember the greats, right? And whenever I get a little, if I get a little sugar daddy anymore, give me a little money for me to go back to the museum in Jamaica. I'm a kind of, all right? So, but respect. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Being willing to pay a hard price, um, and I wish you didn't have to, but but we had to. But, so but we much, had to. So much good came out of the fact that you did. I will say that. Um, there are sorts of conversation that we also probably need to have about just how you know some activists decide that this is the approach that has to be taken, even though they themselves aren't the one dealing with it, but. Yeah, um, that's a conversation for another time. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, thank you for doing Never, just just one last thing. Yeah, people who live in the diaspora really need to be careful because if we're doing things, but we don't have to deal with the consequences, if the people in Jamaica who are living there are the ones who are going to have to face the jury when we antagonize people, no, we need to we need to we need to restrain ourselves sometimes. It's not fair. It's not fair. Like mm -hmm. I have this metaphor of the beehive poker. You go and you see one beehive around a wasp nest, and you take a stick and you you juggle, 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 and you know so the wasp them are gonna fly up and fly up and fly up. And if people did it, they might go get sting. I don't like this approach to advocacy, especially when the stick I reach through the internet or I reach from North America, I stir up the ants nest of Jamaica. I know say the person where I push the stick, now I go get sting. That is not okay. That is not okay. Oh, what's this after that? Right. Me not, me not. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, thank you. Thank you so much for and sharing some powerful perspectives. Like I said, like I have a couple people in my book, Shade after come back. Hello. Come back, right? But, uh, <laughs> yeah, man. And the fish feeling nice, it's spice in our week, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. May I appreciate the conversation to mine. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I, 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 I want to wrap up. I didn't know that. Mildred, Mildred, Mildred. Chavez, oh my God, this was beautiful. Thank you so much for going there with us. Um, I hope the listeners were taking notes because Lord knows I was. I'm look at iPad right there. So when I was that little, but I have a director somewhere. I'll see you. 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 I'll see you
<laughs> thank you for the gems. Thank you for for just being who you are um, and for using whatever you went through to for, for continued power, um, for, for continued empowerment. And I can tell you that I am truly inspired by you, your story and your journey. And I can't wait to learn more to about you, to speak more with you. So yes, I forgot to come back. Um, I'm glad this is in record, is being recorded. So I have something can't hold against you. <laughs> <laughs> so our listeners, our faithful listeners, thank you for being a part of the Fish Tea family um, for the past three seasons. We have one good and I like one good. Um, uh, please remember to like, share, and subscribe to us on Fish Tea Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and on Twitter. If you'd like to send us a more private comment or just suggestions for future shows or people who we should bring on or whatever you'd like to see happening with the show, please email us at fishteapodcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you want to be a guest, please feel free to let you know. Reach out, make one more one. As per usual, stay sophisticated. Bye. Bye.